Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon, and my guest today is Gary Fry. Gary, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on this show, Earl, and happy day after 4th of July to you. Oh yeah, no, I can't wait to have this discussion. But uh, before we before we get into that, what I want listeners to know about Gary uh, is Gary is a connector, MacGyver, and confidant for CEOs, as well as the co-host of the Anything But Typical podcast. And I love to uh, help fellow podcasters get listeners, so that sh- uh, will definitely be a link in there. But on the show, they feature behind-the-scenes stories of ripple-making entrepreneurs to encourage others. He has served as president of four successful companies, including bizjournals.com, a business news portal, which he helped transform from a three-person organization to a $100 million company. He has done two turnarounds and held executive positions in two Fortune 100 companies. Gary leads business growth coaching and business development efforts for a regional CPA firm that serves privately held businesses and their owners. He is a successful coach where he blends his wisdom and knowledge with his mastery of storytelling. If your company needs to change in terms of culture, growth, and strategy, he's your person. Gary genuinely has a passion and love to serve his clients and is a master collaborator and has a career including expertise in business development and account management. Gary brings his energy, a positive attitude, and a smile to everything he undertakes. He is a pioneer in customer experience and thought leader who connects purposefully managing customer interactions with their brand. And if that's not enough, 
Gary does a Murph every Monday. Now, a lot of my listeners probably know what that is, but those of you don't, it's a CrossFit thing uh, named after Lieutenant Michael Murphy. Uh, So make sure you go check that out. It is a grueling workout. A triathlete, drummer, father, grandfather, and husband. And uh, Gary, again, with all that free time that you have there, I'm glad you're a guest on the show. And I can't wait to hear how you answer that first question that I ask all of my guests on the show. When you hear the words responsible leadership, what do they mean to you? Well, if I had to put it down into one word, I would say serve or service, not to yourself, but to other people. And it has to be driven by purpose. And when we're driven by purpose and we're driven with a penchant to serve somebody else, I think we will do great things. We'll lead by example. We'll have the courage needed to do the impossible because it's part of a team and it's not a solo act. So that's how I would answer that question, Earl. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. And, and uh, you know, listeners, you know, I, I usually try to cut down bios into a little bit more manageable, but I wanted you to really understand all of Gary's experience. So when you heard his answer, you'd see where that was coming from. It's coming from a, a, a space of, of deep understanding and experience, right? This isn't a lot of theory. This is stuff that Gary has, has put into practice. And I'm really kind of uh, curious on that note, what got you, what got you kind of passionate about this path? What was the thing that got Gary going down this road? Well, it's a twisted tale of I planned and God laughed. And it's interesting because I, I was brought in to do my first turnaround at the ripe old age of 28. And I did not know what the heck I was doing. And I, thought I was completely unqualified, which I was completely unqualified, by the way. And and we did it. But I thought this is going to be my forever home. And I hadn't learned a lot of leadership lessons yet by that point. But a few years into that deal, I kept plowing my money back in to make sure that my designers had the best Macintosh <laughs> Uh, computers at the time, and they were about 12 grand a piece at that time in 1991 uh, and 92. But three years into it, I caught my partner's hand in the cookie jar twice. And Mm. my name was on the door. And I either had to destroy him and everybody in Wichita, Kansas knew who he was. He was 20 years older than me, and he had been the head of corporate communications for Cessna Aircraft. And so I either had to destroy him or I destroyed my name by taking the, the company across the street. And so that was the first of a number of pretty severe blows to my plans. Um, but they were all in, on purpose, I think. I mean, there are good things that happen out of really tough things. And what we went through later on in life was put that, you know, made that be child's play, really. Um, but I think what I've seen in my crazy career path, I'm now 60 years old. Um, and I, I've done a lot of things that again, I was not qualified for whatsoever. I've worked under really good leaders and really bad leaders. And, um, and when you get to see those two extremes, you start 
paying attention unless you want to keep going around the same mountain umpteen times. And I don't. Um, and, and I think it was really in the crucibles and seeing the, the extremes. Um, and one of the best leaders I ever worked under was also a Marine. And by the way, thank you for your service, Earl. Yes, sir. Um, his name is Hugh McCall. And he, he really changed the face of banking in, in the world when he was at the helm of a thing called NCNB, then it became Nations Bank when I joined, and then we bought Bank of America and became Bank of America. Um, but the best woman and the best leader I ever served under, report she was two reports from the CEO and the chairman. And on my first day at Nations Bank, she set the tone and she basically welcomed me into her office and said, we're, we're so glad to have you. And she said, here's some things that are really important for you to know. Some idiosyncrasies, some, you know, like if M Mr. McCall sees you and he asks you a question, he's genuinely interested. And by the way, he will walk the, 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 the floors, the halls, and, and he's very curious. If you don't know an answer, don't fake it. And then she told us our three core values, do the right thing, teamwork and trust, and have a passion for winning in that order. That that one hour day one meeting with her set the tone. And, oh, and she said, by the way, and I was given a MacGyver role. That's where the MacGyver thing came because they had just made an acquisition. It was the largest in banking history at that time in the Midwest. It was 11 state region and things were on fire. Their attrition levels were much higher number of things, the metrics just were not working as they had in every other acquisition they'd made on the East Coast. And so they targeted me specifically because I was from the Midwest. I'd run ad agencies and they thought it was a communication problem. So all communications internally and externally came through me and then a team that, that I inherited. But she said, we need you to go and get your, you know, feet on the streets, ear to the ground and find out what's going on and come back and then give us a recommendation because this is not working. And she said, my job is to make sure that you know who that she said, my job is to make sure that Hugh McCall knows who Gary Fry is. Your job is to make sure that I know who your stars are. Hire your replacement and never be afraid to be the dumbest person in, in the room. That think about the the importance of that meeting and the context that she said and she made good on every one of those things i wasn't a regular in mr mccall's office but i had access and and he knew me and i think that's leadership man i mean you know and she's not on linkedin i i wrote a post in on linkedin four or five years ago five years ago now to honor her, didn't call her out by name, and um, just shy of eight million people read that post, and um, and I, I I framed a lot of the comments. It took me uh, a little over four weeks to answer all of the comments and and emails that I got regarding that, and so I put together this really cool framed montage for her because she's not on LinkedIn. And I said, Helen, I want you to understand the ripple effect your leadership has had on people all, all over the world. 
Yeah. And uh, it was really cool. Uh, she cried. <laughs> and she's a tough woman, man. She doesn't cry easy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I think that embodies a lot, man. No, uh, Gary, uh, that was there. There was there was a lot. There were so many, uh, so many themes there that I think we could probably do a show on each one of those. Um, but you know, there was one thing that you said there that, that has been a, a big topic of discussion as of late, you talked about being uh, 28 and being put in that position with little to no experience. And, uh, you know, I think that is a position that a lot of people find themselves in, uh, today because, uh, and I, I've quoted this quite a bit, uh, but there was a study done back in 2012, uh, that, that showed, uh, that the average age that someone was promoted into their first leadership slash management role uh, was somewhere in their early thirties. And the average age that they received their first formal training uh, to be in a leadership or management role was somewhere in their early forties. Uh, and you know, you, you kind of fit that, 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 that data set perfectly right there. Uh, so yeah. I'm kind of curious. Let, let's go back to that piece here for a minute. Cause I want to try to unpack a lot of what you said in that story there, but I want to start there. Uh, how did you close that gap? How did you go from being the 28 year inexperienced person to having a successful turnaround? Well, you know, it was desperation, quite frankly. Um, I had two little kids and my partner was bleeding red ink all over the place. He didn't even have the money to go bankrupt if he wanted to. Mm. And so, and I was the sole breadwinner uh, for my family. So, but what was interesting is he had hired, he did a, a Hail Mary, hired a guy out of Richmond, Virginia, Stuart Sanders, who was a guru in business development for ad agencies in particular. He had helped see uh, the, the meteoric rise of the Martin agency, which was a storied still is, I guess, uh, haven't been in that world for a long time, but big ad agency out of, uh, Mark, uh, Richmond, Virginia. And so he charged a lot of money at that time in 91, he charged 10,000 bucks a day plus expenses. And you paid him up front. And by the way, his expenses, he flew first class to Wichita, Kansas, which is not going into Chicago or any of the other major hubs. So Everything was a big ticket with, with Stuart, but he was the guru. He was the guy that got me placed there. He had called around town. My name kept cropping up. And so that's how I was brought in. You know, hey, you turn it around and you, you get equity. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And But what was interesting is my partner said, I said, well, what? position do you want in the marketplace? Because I was a big uh, Trout and Rice uh, reader. They had a, a book called Positioning Battle for Your Mind. And it's an excellent read. It's, it's, it's an old, but it's still so perfect. Anybody out there that wants to understand how to position yourself and separate, separate yourself from the pack, that's probably my favorite read. And it, you'll get through it fast and you'll understand it quickly. But He's, he, he laid out very clearly the position that he wanted to own in the marketplace because I had worked for that agency. It was the most award-winning agency in town. We were wildly creative. 
and we had gotten acquired by a much bigger agency that just wanted our McDonald's account. We had the largest franchise group of McDonald's restaurants in the Midwest at that time. And so they gutted our award-winning creative department that I was a part of. So I'm like, well, I know, I know how we did that. So yeah, I could do that. So he painted a very clear picture of what he wanted. And that resonated with me because I had lived it. I'm like, oh, well, I don't know what I'm doing on this other stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm from the Midwest and it's, you know, don't, don't complicate things. Keep it simple, stupid for guys like me. And I was like, you know, we're getting rid of all of this stupid hourly billing stuff because one, I could hire a painter to paint my office, but if he painted it with a toothbrush and I paid him by the hour, it'd be $15,000 for him to paint this one room. Or I could hire him and say, you know, this room is worth probably 500 bucks to have you paint it. And if it takes you three years, we'll have to have a conversation about it, but you're not making any money. And if it takes you 20 minutes and it's a good job, I really don't care. So that's what we did. We just put in place some really simple things that tried to turn the table. If I was on the client side, what would I want? Well, they want predictability. They don't want a bunch of changes and, you know, a lot of asterisks. And by the way, you know, surprise bills, what I call bill and duck routine, you know, where you slide the bill and you duck because they're going to swing at you. (laughs) So it was really bonehead, simple stuff like that. But again, I go back to the fact that he had a very clear picture of what he wanted and I'd actually lived that. So I could imagine, okay, that's doable. So hopefully that helps. Earl. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's, that's, you know, again, relying on those past experiences, the things that you, you do know, to kind of bridge the gap between what you do know and what you are finding out. I mean, I think that's a a very valuable uh, piece of advice because a lot of times, you know, that can really shorten that span quite a bit when you recognize how, how similar things are. Um, But, you know, I kind of want to go back to a couple of those things you mentioned that, that Helen had had shared. And and I like the advice of don't be afraid to be the dumbest person in the room. And mm-hmm. don't be afraid to hire your replacement. And I think those two things right there, uh, you know, th- those are are great, great pieces of advice that we see a lot of folks struggle with because they think they have to be the smartest person in the room or they're not yeah. qualified to be in the room. And they think yeah. that if they hire their replacement, that means that they're expendable, which it yes. does, but in a good way, right? Well, and it takes leadership above you to help calm those fears because we all have those fears. You know, I think I, I, I say we all maybe, you know, pure sociopathic narcissists don't, but most people do. And these insecurities, and it's interesting. Um, I've just finished a book and it's not published yet. I'm going down that, that route on imposter syndrome because a lot of my life was dealing with that. And I thought I was the only one until I started coaching CEOs as early as 1998. And usually it was a side gig just because it was fun. And then I've done it full time for a while too. But every CEO and some very, very accomplished ones, one um, that I've coached, she has had 12,000 W2 employees. And 
what was interesting is she she pulls me aside. She goes, but Gary, you know, I really don't know what I'm doing. I, and I helped her find her first CFO. And I'm not a CFO, believe I, I'm not a CFO. I'm not a CPA. You wouldn't want me to be that. That's not my gift, uh, even though I work for a CPA firm. Um, I love we, we help companies grow. But I said, Tana, you're amazing. You, you've never even had a fractional CFO and you've had organizations this big. She's had some good exits of companies. She goes, yeah, but I only have two years of secretarial school. Oh, imposter syndrome. Yep. And, and, you know, I dropped out of college after my second year. Um, I had a job offer and it was the highest unemployment on record since the great depression. This is 1982. And, um, my advisor said, you got to take that job. I had done an internship, but man, that was an albatross around my neck. I was the only one that I know of or that I knew of that was a senior VP at Bank of America. And I had MBAs. Most of the people that worked for me were MBAs under some, with some, you know, North, uh, Northwestern and Wharton and blah, blah, blah. And here I, I am a college dropout. Who am I? Right. And yeah. so that that's a really big deal. Now they say that at least 70% of the population deals with it. Um, and so I've put together seven things that I've used to help me and that I've seen other uh, leaders in particular deal with. And it's interesting because, you know, this the topic of leadership, you would be amazed at how many people when they get real and they drop the guard, go, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in way over my head. Yeah. Pretty much everybody. <laughs> well, yeah. It's amazing. And and it's, it's, it's actually, it, it, this is my opinion. Tell me if you have a different take on it, but I think having that level of maturity to be able to realize that, understand it and admit it is, is a strength, right? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because humility is one of my favorite qualities that I look for in people. Like if I don't find humility in somebody that wants me to coach them, I won't, I won't work with them because they're not coachable. Yeah. They're just not. Yeah. And it takes humility to understand, you know what? We individually know about the size of a thimble, you know, in relative speaking to the size of the universe. <laughs> yeah. um, but collectively you put a bunch of those thimbles together and you can actually amass some, some pretty cool things. Nobody yeah. put somebody on the moon by themselves, period. You know, things like that. Elon Musk is, is wild and crazy and just, you know, just wildly inventive as he is. He, he hasn't done SpaceX by himself. I know an engineer that ran his model three plant and um, just couldn't keep up with this guy, <laughs> you know, but Elon Musk hired the best and the brightest. And, um, and he still does, I think, from what I can tell. So yeah, there, there's something to collective and it doesn't mean that everybody has to have a say in a decision. Um, good leaders listen to their troops. That's what I loved about McCall. Like he walked among the troops. 
and good leaders walk among the troops. They, they, they listen, they pay attention because they know that the front line actually has the best ideas for solving problems. Yeah. No, again, so much there because you're right. I mean, uh, in the Marines, when you go to the rifle range, the first question that the uh, PMI, the primary marksmanship instructor asks is who here has fired a weapon before? And you always get the the Southerners like me that raise their hand. Yeah. He goes, you're going to have the worst time going through this class. What do you <laughs> mean? He goes, because you already think you know everything there is to know about shooting a rifle. <laughs> and you know what? He's right. The, the people who have never picked up a rifle before are usually the ones that, because like you, you were talking about, they, they listen, right? They, they know that yeah. they don't know. They don't think that they already have all the answers. And I think that's the, the great piece about that. But, you know, that, that walking the, walking the halls and, and listening, I share, um, and goodness, it's been three years or so ago now, but one of the first stories I shared on this podcast was about, you know, King Leonidas building the wall at the battle of Thermopylae. And that's exactly mm. what he did. He just, you know, he, he said, Hey, this is what we need to do. And then he sat back and he listened to his captains discuss the pros and cons of, of each of those points. And then he simply walks over, he picks up a rock, lays it on the ground and starts stacking stones. He didn't say a word. He just starts stacking stones himself, the king. And everybody mm -hmm. figures out, okay, he listened to us. This is his best judgment. Um, and then the other story here, and, and it's interesting, you talk about doing the Murph. Uh, I'm not sure how much, uh, how much do you understand? Do you know the history behind Lieutenant Michael Murphy? Yeah, I, I do. Um, my, my son was a shoe designer at Reebok and I never heard of CrossFit before. Um, but he started working for them in 2011 and he's like, dad, after his first day, you would love this. <laughs> and and yeah. so he met a lot of the CrossFitters. And then when I heard the story of this, here's a Lieutenant, right? Right. Yeah. And yeah. getting killed, but that was like, his favorite um, thing, I guess. And it was, so for anybody listening that doesn't know what a Murph is, it's a, you're wearing a 20 pound vest to sim to simulate um, the gear that somebody would be wearing in combat. And you run a mile, then you do a hundred pull-ups, you do 200 push-ups, you do 300 air squats, and then you run another mile. And all of that is for time. And I just ran, did mine yesterday morning <laughs> in the heat and the, the mugginess of Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and so, you know, and, and it is a grueling, grueling exercise, but uh, you know, the, the great story behind uh, uh, Lieutenant Michael Murphy uh, you know, he was kind of uh, memorialized in the movie Lone Survivor uh, with about Marcus Luttrell making it out of uh, operation Red Wing. Um, but, but, the thing that they capture in a movie that goes in with what uh, Gary and I've been talking about here is there's a scene uh, early on in the movie where the, the shepherds uh, find them, you know, literally trip over them in the hills. Right. And they're debating what to do with these shepherds. Uh, people are, you know, one, one individual is talking about, Hey, we should just tie them up in the trees and they're having this conversation. Well, if we do that and the wolves get to them, then, you know, it's going to be Navy seals leave shepherds to die in the woods. Uh, we can't just kill them. It's going to be Navy, Navy SEALs kill innocent bystanders. It's like, you know, what, what do we do? And they're weighing everything, right? 
And uh, mm-hmm. Michael Murphy is, he is the officer in charge, but he's listening. He's participating in the conversation. He's weighing the pros and cons of what each one of these things will do. And they finally come to a point where they got to make a decision. He says, look, this isn't a democracy. This is my decision to make. Here's what we're going to do. I'll deal with the consequences. Um, and that was essentially to let the shepherds go and try to get out of there before they could get the village and, and say anything. And, you know, unfortunately, they ended up being uh, a decision that backfired. But it, it, it's that piece that we're talking about here of, of that leadership, not having to have all the solutions, listening uh, and, and pulling everybody in. And, and you can't do that if you're the smartest person in the room and you're not willing to realize that there may be somebody there that has a better uh, answer than you. Uh, and I talk a lot about cognitive diversity, and that's that's what we're talking about here is having those people that can cover down on your weak spots to have a better final solution to a complicated problem. So I really like that piece of advice, Gary. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. So again, and listen, Hugh McCall is, is a mere mortal, just like everybody else. He has flaws. He's not a perfect dude at all, but a lot of the things, if you even go back to our core values, do the right thing, teamwork and trust, passion for winning in that order, the things, I think he learned a lot of this from the Marine Corps. And mm-hmm. um, so we had a thing called the the Crystal Hand Grenade Award that he gave a Waterford Crystal Hand Grenade. And it was the most coveted thing in all of Nations Bank. And then political correctness killed that. Uh, when we bought Bank of America, or it was supposedly the merger of, e- of equals, but there's no such thing. Um, we, and he made it very clear that we bought them. So, um, but it was too politically incorrect. But the the beauty of that crystal hand grenade was only a hundred, I think, had been given out, and we had 160,000 employees by the time it was all said and done. When I was there, we started with 80,000 and we went to 160,000 associates, as we called ourselves. But people would have given, you know, six figure or at least five figure bonuses away to have earned one of those. They were that coveted and they were all about jumping on the grenade to do the right thing for our customers, our clients, or our associates. Um, well, that says a lot. And the other thing that was really interesting, and and McCall modeled this, I was in a, a couple meetings with him, and my boss and all of his lieutenants modeled this behavior, which was, and especially with all of the locations that we had across the country, I was on, uh, you know, calls all the time that had from coast to coast. And the expectation was you are asked to give your opinion. It better be thought thoughtful, but you, you aren't going to be crucified for um, speaking your mind, but you need to make sure that you thought through it. And then the, the ranking person on the call would listen and say, you know what? I've heard everybody, but we're going to do this. And even if you vehemently disagreed with that call, one, the decision was not going to go against our core values, do the right thing, teamwork and trust, have passion for winning. 
And so even if you vehemently disagreed, you, you had been heard. And so the, the, the behavior that was expected was salute and take the hill because you were heard. And it it was a great, now I don't think that that same culture exists there because McCall's not there and leadership always, always, always sets the tone. You bring in a new leader and it's going to set a different tone. You can't help it, but leadership and management always sets the tone. And, and, I thought he led by great leadership. There would be some that maybe got in his crosshairs that would disagree with me. Um, fortunately, I never got in his crosshairs. <laughs> so. oh, yeah. Well, I, I like that uh, again, because, uh, you know, I'd never heard that associated with the baking industry, but I love that policy because it reminds me of, uh, uh, I think it was Intel. They, they had a similar thing. They called it disagree, but commit. And yes, uh, yeah. And, and there were stories of people like disagreeing so uh, so openly during meetings that like they would throw books at each other and all that good stuff. But as soon as the decision was made, everybody was expected to commit to that decision. And if you didn't, the throwing the book was like, hey, that's passion. We, we, we love that. But if you didn't commit and you went out and said, well, hey, I didn't agree with this, but this was decisions made like that was the thing that really violated all of the core values of the organization. And it sounds like it was very similar to that, right? You were expected to commit to the decision that was made, no matter how much you disagreed with it, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a huge difference. And this is one of the things, like all, all the stuff that we, we do in coaching, it's, it's bare bones, stupid common sense stuff. You know, you can go to traction, read EOS, be part of EOS. You could be part of, I, I was trained under scaling up, which Vern Harnish wrote the book on Rockefeller's, uh, the Rockefeller habits and actually Gino Wickman who did EOS worked for Vern and just simplified it in some regards and outmarketed Vern Bart, but there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon said that thousands and thousands of years ago, and it's still true today. But a lot of these basic principles are still there. And commitment is imperative. Consensus is forget about it. You're never going to get consensus. And if you're a fool, if you try to waste time getting consensus, listen and then commit. And I'd take it as far as to say, if you do, you should be even more scared, right? Because then people are just telling you what you want to hear. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's interesting because, um, Earl, one of the things that I noticed after we bought, so I lived through the three largest bank acquisitions in history at that time. And each one, the culture and the cultural dynamics were different. And one of them was so pronounced and I, and it, it led me down a path later on in my career where I really started getting into cultural compatibility because the deal guys are just kind of dead set on the deal. They're looking at the metrics and, and the efficiencies and blah, 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 in a, in a sanitized environment. Well, that never comes to play. And most of these folks that do the deals have never run companies. You know, they're, they're quant jocks and you need those 
but most of them have never been in the trenches and actually run a company or cut their own salary to make payroll. So, but what I noticed was the cultural differences are always the first thing that raise their head once the deal has is, is been named. And one of those e- examples was I was on a conference call and at this point I had bi-coastal teams that were reporting to me. And I asked the team that, and they were in various cities from the acquired company, hey, any, any thoughts? Crickets, nothing. And I, hey, well, what do you think? Nothing. But as soon as we were done, I found out the sniping began. You know, the phone lines light up on their side and they are like, what are these guys doing? You know, blah, blah, blah. They're moving the cheese. <laughs> and I thought, isn't that interesting? And that has been a true statement ever since that moment. Now, I got to also work with Daimler Chrysler. So it was the biggest slam together merger, I think, in history at that time. And I did brand strategy for them for the launch of the Sprinter van, which is now badged Mercedes. But at the time, it could not be badged Mercedes in the United States because of some dealer agreements. So you open up the hood and it's a TriStar logo on that diesel engine, but it could not have the TriStar logo, the Mercedes logo on the outside of the vehicle. So I was working with Detroit guys, the Chrysler guys, and then I was working with the German guys, very precise, you know, blah, blah. And I thought, I was depressed actually because, and I liked both teams that I worked with, but I thought, man, these cultures are oil and water. You got one, you know, the two martini guys from Detroit that liked, uh, you know, they were all about driving down incremental costs on components, which, you know, that's what they're kind of known for. And then you had the Germans, very precise, you know, quality, quality, quality. And I thought, well, I guess you get sewn so big, you slam these things together and it finally works out. Well, it was years after that. So I, I was doing that in 2001 and 2002 with them. I think it was like seven years later, something like that. It was a multi-billion dollar blow up. It was colossal. And it's a, there's a Harvard case study on it. And it, they, they cite the cultural incompatibility, the reason that thing blew up. And it's cult, it's corporate arrogance to ignore those dynamics. And it doesn't mean that one's good and one's bad. It just means they're different. And oil and water do not mix. So yeah. that's what, what happens a lot of times. Yeah. No, and, and I like the fact that you put it that way, right? It's not that one is good and one is bad because we love to assign those those tags. One, one is right. the, the good thing, one is the bad thing, but they're, you're right. They're just different. And that's, I think that's the root of a lot of things. If we can just realize that things aren't necessarily good or bad, they're just different. We could, we could go a long way in solving a lot of issues, but, uh, you totally. know, um, I want to kind of uh, go here a little bit, cause we talked about your, your coaching business and, and the things that you do. And, uh, you know, I, I do uh, a decent amount of that myself, but I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, because whenever I talk about it on the show, it always sounds self-serving. And uh, why do you believe that coaching is such an important tool for, for leaders and business owners? 
Man, I so I I love finding patterns, and I'm I'm, I'm actually pretty good at that because I was trained as a designer. So I think right brain, you know, I created, I learned how to creatively problem solve right brain. And so one of the patterns that I have seen over since really 98, when I started doing this and I got drug into it, I never thought, oh, I want to go be a coach and I don't want to be a full-time coach because it's lonely. Um, that's why I got out of doing it full-time in, uh, 2019 after two years of just doing it full time is because it's lonely. And here's the deal. Every, so one of the patterns that I've seen among all these leaders that I've helped coach or that friends have coached, it's just, they've hired coaches there. There's a, a, there's some similarities across all of them. One, they are voracious readers or learners even if they're not great readers, they listen to podcasts, they listen to books on tape, et cetera. Uh, they are in paid peer-to-peer -peer groups. Could be C12, it could be Vistage, it could be a number of things, or it could be, you know, they've got an EOS coach, they have a scaling up coach, et cetera, but they've got those things going on. They are committed, a lot of them are committed to fitness, which is really interesting to me. There's usually an element of personal expression. So some of them lift their trucks. Some of them have eyeglass collections, but there's usually an element of, of personalization. And, and so many of them are givers, which is really interesting to me. And so I look back on why did we pay a guy in today's money 21,000 bucks a day to come in? Well, we were desperate pain was high. And what I saw was, is after we got past the pain and now all of a sudden I'm stroking the, the check too, 50% of it's coming from me. I knew that Stuart didn't like rarely, occasionally, but rarely did he give us something that we hadn't known or heard of, or, you know, like, whoa, that was crazy. But he gave us confidence and if you're, if you're stroking that kind of a check, you better pay attention. You better do what the dude says to do, or you hired the wrong guy, or you're just a fool. So one of, one of the uh, coaching clients of one of my former partners said, it's hard to read the label when you're inside the jar. <laughs> and that is a true statement. When I joined the CPA firm, um, We've had an outside coach for eight years. I actually brought in one of my former partners who's a very good coach. Uh, and they said, well, gosh, Gary, we'll just pay you. I said, I'm inside the jar. As much as I would love to do it, we need an outside perspective. And I did a, uh, a video, a 60-second video on why would a guy like Tiger Woods hire a swing coach who could not hold a candle to him on the course unless Tiger was just having a really terrible day. Why would he do that? And so I had my assumptions and I'm a terrible golfer, but I had a, a happenstance encounter with a very famous golfer, uh, Tommy Fleetwood. And I showed him that video and I said, am I all wet or what? And he said, you nailed it. He goes, yeah, we need somebody 
outside of our own head to help us see stuff that we don't see. Yeah. That's it. I think um, it, it was a huge sacrifice for me personally back in the early nineties to sp- stroke a check like that. Yeah. You know, it was coming out of my pocket or it was like, and I had designers going, dude, we need another workstation, 12 grand. Yeah, but man, we're going to get our money three, four times in return. Hold on. So we'd have to MacGyver. All right, what are we going to do until then? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, again, Stuart got his money up front. But I, <laughs> there's something to the, like you go faster when you have somebody that is outside the label or outside the jar that can help you read the label. Yeah, no, again, I love that. And, and you're, you're spot on. And, and I go as far as to say that up front uh, when I'm getting ready to work with somebody, I said that there, there's going to come a point where you're really going to hate me. And they're like, when's that? I'm like when we're six months, a year down the road and you look back and be like, you know what? I knew all this stuff already. All Earl did was make me realize I knew this stuff already. I said, that's yep. the point you're really going to hate me. Um, but yeah, so man, Gary, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, we're sitting here a little over 40 minutes at this point. Um, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover so far that you really want to leave listeners with before we get out of here? So one, I would like to say thank you for your service, Earl. Yes, sir. Two, I saw that you served in Okinawa. Yes. And um, my favorite American living war hero is a guy named Mace Coleman, and he's 94. I met him at the Y seven years ago, um, and he was still boxing. Mm. And um, he fought, he enlisted as a Marine at age 15 and went into World War II and fought in Okinawa. Yeah. And as I got to know him and he, I would have to pull stories. He was also the chairman and CEO of national gypsum. And he brought that company to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I had just seen Hacksaw Ridge and, um, the, the hero conscientious objector fought. Well, he, he rescued a bunch of guys off the Ridge, uh, in, in Okinawa. And so he was from Lynchburg, Virginia. And I said, I saw the movie when it came out on, you know, Netflix or whatever it was. And the next business week, I was at, back in the at the Y and in the locker room on Mace's uh, line. And I saw Mace and I said, hey, Mace, I just saw this movie, Hacksaw Ridge. I said, you fought in Okinawa, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, you're from Lynchburg, Virginia, right? And he said, yeah. I said, did you know this guy? Um and I always get his name wrong, Dalton or whatever. I don't remember his name. And he goes, oh, yeah. And he goes, he lived at the top of the sledding hill. And he described the opening scene when he was a kid running up the, that hill to hear his father, who had PTSD from World War One, beating his mom, if I remember correctly. But he described that hill. And I said, Mace, I can't even imagine what you experienced in Okinawa and everywhere else. I just can't even imagine. And I just want to say thank you. And he, he looks at me, he punches me in the arm and he winks and he said, I'd do it again. Yep. 
So that's what I would love to leave you with. Just a, a thank you for you and your service and people like Mace Coleman that allow us to um, have some of the freedoms that we still enjoy, that we still have remaining. And I'm grateful. Well, thank you very much for that. You know, hearing that story, I got goosebumps going right now because, uh, you know, there, there's definitely, uh, you know, a, a deep level of respect for, uh, as we lovingly call it, the, the old breed. Uh, not, not many of us serving today or even in the past 20 years can, can really uh, fully appreciate what they went through. You know, the Pacific mm-hmm. does a pretty good job of capturing, but just a whole whole different level of atrocity that, that they were exposed to. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. And again, it was my pleasure, you know, uh, I, I do it again myself, but you know, I don't know if I could say that if I'd went through everything that, that he had went through. So that is amazing. Um, so Gary, you know, folks want to find out more about you, find out more about your services, find out more about, uh, all things Gary Fry. Where, where are some good places for them to, uh, to, to look? The best place is connect with me on LinkedIn. I've got, I've hit my limit a long time ago on the 30,000 connections, but connect with me, follow me on that. And it's not about amassing followers, but I, I speak from the heart and BGW allows that. Uh, because we have a very similar purpose, which is to help companies save money, make money, stay out of trouble and have fun. And the having fun is really a big part of it uh, and and leaders. And so you don't even have to run a company to appreciate some of the stuff that I like talking about. Um, and I talk about a lot of stuff like what we just talked about here, things that I've noticed of good leaders and bad leaders. And I, I, I don't publicly shame somebody, but I will talk about principles. And so I think LinkedIn is probably the best place um, to connect with me. Outstanding. Well, I'll make sure that 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 link gets put in the show notes so people can get on there and connect with you. And I will be definitely looking forward to uh, to the book. Any idea when when that's going to be a finished product or are you still very? I have no idea. So it's done. and I, a friend of mine is a five-time best-selling New York Times best, uh, author, um, Jeffrey Gittimer. And people either love him or hate him, uh, but he was our number one columnist when I was running bizjournals.com. And he's become a friend and he's published 17 books. He's got another one or two ready to roll now. And I said, Jeffrey, I can't afford your $25,000 to edit this thing, but I don't I don't know what I'm doing. I've never done this before. A good friend who's very well, well read that read it. He said, Gary, just don't self-publish it. It's too good. So I said, I don't know why. Um, so he has read it. And he, and I said, you know, if, if you, you say that I suck, you can tell me that's okay. And he's very blunt. So he would, <laughs> and he said, actually, you're really good. So um, it's with his publishers now I've met with them. I don't know. I, I mean, I've never been down this path, so I really don't know. But right now, the working title is Silence the Imposter, Unleash Anything But Typical. Love so it. we'll see if that survives. But it is about imposter syndrome. And it's really basic stuff that I've found. And then I've got, 
if if you want to avoid my story, you can avoid the last half of the book or so, which is my story, and just focus on the the seven weapons that I have found that are quite effective. I love it. Well, once uh, once we get that, we're going to have to have you back on here and, and, and chat about that. So you have an open invitation to uh, to come back and, and we'll, we'll discuss the book there. But uh, that'd be fun. Yeah, definitely. And, and Gary, look, I just want to say thank you very much for being with us here for the last 50 minutes or so. Uh, it's been a great conversation. You shared some great insight, great stories. Uh, I've loved everything that you, you've talked about here. Uh, I know you're going to keep up doing the great work, but I'm going to say it anyways, just keep doing what you're doing. The world needs it. Looking forward to the book. And just thank you very much for being an outstanding guest here on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Earl. And let's connect on LinkedIn too. So we've got that open line going too. So I appreciate what you're doing, man. Keep being a positive ripple maker out there. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture.